Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, before we introduce our guest today, and I'm so excited to be speaking with him, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to the podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. So very specifically, as soon as you're done listening to this podcast or the next time you see one of our social media graphics on LinkedIn or Twitter, I'd like you to reshare it uh, with your colleagues, uh, blast it out. I've seen a number of you already begin to do this, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time to help spread the podcast and spread the word on creating a new healthcare. Now, our guest today is uh, Dr. Shantanu Nundi, who is a primary care physician, an engineer, a technologist, and business leader who serves as the chief medical officer for a company called Accolade, which delivers personalized navigation and population health services to companies, covering over 2 million working Americans. In addition, he actually practices primary care, and in fact, he is coming to us directly from his primary care practice in the greater Washington, D.C. area right now. Uh, Dr. Nundi was a, a senior health specialist at the World Bank Group, where he advised developing countries across Africa, Asia, and South America on health system innovation and technology. Prior to that, he was the director of the Human Diagnosis Project, an artificial intelligence health startup, which he successfully built into the world's largest open medical project spanning 80, 80 countries, eight zero countries. He is also co-inventor of SMS DM Care, an automated text messaging software for individuals with diabetes, one of the first mobile health interventions to be adopted by the World Health Organization. Uh, Dr. Nundi uh, went to MIT for undergrad, then to Johns Hopkins uh, for his uh, training in medicine and his residency at the University of Chicago. Uh, actually, he did a, a fellowship there in health disparities, and he received his MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Medicine. Uh, he has authored a number of articles and books, most recently, Care After COVID, What the Pandemic Revealed is Broken in Healthcare and how to re reinvent it, which we're going to be discussing in some detail. So, Dr. Nundi, let's start with the title of your book. What did the pandemic reveal about what's broken in healthcare? And, and at a high level, before we dive into some of the specifics you outline in the book, what lessons should we be taking away from the pandemic about the American healthcare system? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, Dr. Newworth, you know, honor to be uh, joining you for this conversation today and uh, and really looking forward to the conversation. You know, we we learned a lot from from COVID. And, and I think there's really along two vectors, right? The first is it was a magnifying glass on the core challenges that the healthcare system has faced for a long time, right? The challenges with getting access to testing reflects the challenges that we have just accessing care, period. The dramatic disparities uh, in health outcomes uh, between different communities reflects the dramatic disparities we have between different communities for a long time. Uh, the mental health crisis, uh, the, the, the fragility of, of primary care. So it really served as a magnifying glass and a common frame of reference for how deeply broken the healthcare system is, not just for healthcare insiders, but for everybody. And I think that's super important. And then the second vector is, is actually a really positive one, right? It's, 
it's that healthcare can change <laughs> and it can change rapidly, right? Um, we, we, can, we can take clinics like mine and go from zero to 80% virtual in an order of two weeks, right? We can have innovative care models like drive-through testing models and at-home testing models. So I, I, and, and we can, you know, deregulate parts of healthcare, like allowing doctors to message uh, even over unsecure channels like FaceTime or uh, WhatsApp without blowing up healthcare costs or leading to, to dramatic issues around patient privacy and protection. And so I think there's really two vectors of, of what we learned. And I think really a lifetime of lessons just from the past year alone. That's a very, a very, uh, I think, hopeful and positive way of looking at it. I, I like your two vectors. There are some specific things you shared with me as when we were corresponding uh, prior to this uh, interview, and I'm going to dive into them uh, in a moment. Uh, you, you said something about digitalizing poor care isn't enough. We need to reinvent it. I really want to hear more about that because that sounds spot on. Uh, your notion that we have to stop iterating on the wrong foundation and, and move to a new foundation. I want to get into that, but I think the big message I got from reading your book, and by the way, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. The stories were fantastic. I'm going to ask you about those. You start out by saying that really, as I understood it, uh, sort of a three-part reframe using uh, language I, I like to use about reframing healthcare. And you sort of contrast it to some of the piecemeal. So people talk now about using virtual. They talk about home-based care, talk about value-based care, but you're saying, no, let's step back. And here are three things we have to move towards. I'd love for you to just to give that high level of, of those three things, and maybe we could dive into it with, and, and with some illustrative stories as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, you know, I think a mentor of mine once told me that words create worlds. And so with this book, I was really intentional with the words I created um, because I want to create a mindset shift. Right. I, I don't want to be out there saying, you know, hey, the answer is this technology or that care model or that. I, I think what we've learned in the past year is that the front lines of healthcare, they know what to do for their patients. Right. I, I think, and so I think it's way more important for me to be out there saying conceptually, this is the mindset or the framework we need to be operating in. So that's sort of the first part. Um, in terms of the, the the concept, so some people are now calling it the three Ds, <laughs> which I'm totally fine with, but it's it's this, that care needs to become distributed, it needs to become digitally enabled, and it needs to become decentralized. And I'm going to define those, and I'm also going to contrast them to how we talk about healthcare today. So distributed means that, you know, that care needs to happen where health happens, which is at home and in the community. And purposefully pick the word distributed rather than virtual or home-based, because I think virtual and home-based, you know, forget that care needs to be connected and integrated. And that oftentimes, even if you can make, say, the visit to the doctor virtual, in order to achieve the patient's outcome, you might need to, I don't know, stick a Q-tip in someone's nose or have them go get a lab test or fill a medication and take that medication. And so I think saying that care has become virtualized, I think, is a little bit of of an oversimplification and a misorientation around ultimately what we're trying to do, which is distribute from a highly central model to a model that's much more localized to where patients are and where their health behaviors are being driven. So that's di distributed. Digitally enabled is this idea that the real role for data and technology is to strengthen relationships, right? What makes healthcare work is trust between people. 
and that you know compared to other digital technologies like you again contrasting it to say ai or contrasting it to ehrs what we're trying what i'm trying to say is that the role for technology is really to enable those relationships right like so for example the fact that i can now message with my patients allows me to be much closer to them um, than i was before and then the third is decentralized right so to your point a lot of people are talking about population health value-based care those are really important but what I find is that in order to make those things work, what you have to do is not just simply give, you know, hand doctors the bag of financial risk or give consumers or patients the financial risk, which is like what a consumer directed health plan is. You actually need to also decentralize or shift power in terms of decision making uh, authority and resources to the front lines and to patients. Um, so those are the concepts that uh, I try to outline in the book. Let's start with the digitally enabled. You know, one thing I found really important in that section of the book was connected care. Actually, and I'm going to quote this, connected care as being beyond technology. I think there is this sort of over-reliance uh, or this belief that virtual or digital in and of itself will solve the problem. And you have a different perspective on that and really important coming from someone with your background MIT undergrad technologist, you know, I think, you know, for you to bring a different part to it, I'm wondering if you could expand on what's missing in that if we, or what might we lose uh, if we're not careful with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe I'll start with this, with the story, um, which is, you know, my first real shot to take something completely of my own and try to do something in healthcare came to me when I was uh, a fellow at the University of Chicago. And I saw so many of my patients on the South side, you know, struggle with their diabetes, struggle with their chronic diseases. And, you know, to be frank, I had a really overly simplistic model of what was going on. I said, well, hey, you know, folks are busy, their lives are, are, are chaotic, they're, they have everything going on between one visit to the next. What I'm going to do is they need reminders, right? So I created an automated text messaging system that sent them reminders that said, hey, take your medicines, you know, check your sugar, you know check your feet, uh, eat the right things. And, uh, you know, and I, I did this as a pilot study. And at the end of the month, it, it was incredible. Like we showed that people's self-care, self-management behaviors went up and to the right in a significant, significant way. And when I went to my mentors and told them about it, they said, yeah, ask them why it worked. And I said, that's so silly. We already know why it worked, which is we sent reminders and people took... So, you know, we did this in-depth qualitative interviews and I sat down to, to sort of listen to the interviews one night and I thought this is going to be the most boring three hours of my life, but here we go. Uh, and it was, I was riveted. Um, conversation after conversation, they kept talking about Marla and I was sitting there like, who in the world is Marla? Um, and of course, it didn't take me too long to realize that Marla was the name of the, the, the woman who enrolled the patients in the clinical study that we were doing, right? So she, her job was to sit down with them and show them all the IRB forms and get them to sign it. But in the course of that interaction, it turns out Marla's, you know, a wonderful woman, incredible empathy. She's actually a, a certified diabetes educator. She'd built a really deep relationship with them. And a lot of them said, well, hey, I started taking my medicines more, not only because I got the reminders, because I didn't want to let Marla down. <laughs> or they said, yeah, you know, I answered the questions because, you know, Marla was watching. 
And in some of the interviews, we actually said, you know that these were automated messages. And they said, yeah, but but Marla's out there somewhere. She's somehow involved with this, right? And and that was a real learning you know, lesson for me, right? Because I think it's, it gets exactly to your question, which is that, yes, you know, when we talk about connected health, we often sort of say, okay, we're going to wire up your house and, you know, transmit your glucometer data and all this stuff. And that that's all really important, but just as important is really building that kind of connectivity to people. Um, because ultimately that's that relationship and that sort of shared accountability is what drives behavior change. This word connectivity in the business, it's become a big word. And I think a lot of us see that, interpret that as, as electronic or digital or virtual connectivity, whereas what you're talking about is actual human connectivity, relational connectivity. Anyone who's practiced knows this. If you have a, a nurse or an MA or, or you know, a provider, uh, could even be a front office staff who connects with the patient, a home care community health worker, that's everything. I mean, that changes the whole point. You know, it, it goes back to the basics of behavioral economics. I mean, that one of the major drivers of, of behavior is having a relationship with other people. Connectivity does not mean uh, just an electronic connectivity. That's the enabler, but the driver is really human relationship and connectivity, as I understand what you're saying. Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll also add, I'm saying it's a both and. Right. Because look, you can have the nicest, most empathetic doctor in the world. But right now in my clinic, if you want to get a hold of me between visits, like good luck. Right. Because you have to call into a service, go through multiple IVR windows, like leave a message, then they'll call me, then I'll call back. And it, right. It's so it, it has to be both. But I think, yeah, oftentimes, particularly in sort of the health tech world, we're, we're super focused on just the data connectivity and the technology connectivity. Um, and then it's the other world's maybe overly focused on, hey, well, we're just going to have a great doctor and a great nurse here. And hey, that's going to be enough. Like, I think it's both. I couldn't agree more with you. I think the, again, it's that sort of, as you put it, it's digitally enabled. That's the key word. I think, you know, it's interesting as I speak to people uh, across the country and who are using the so-called digital front door, the digital back door, you know, patient engagement through digital what I'm finding is I'm, I'm talking to folks and I could give you examples of this is that they're learning as they, as you did when, when they actually study what's working, what's not working by interviewing people, they're learning that people are starved for human relationship, for human connection. It's really sort of a thematic that I'm, I'm seeing just almost like a rebound thematic. And that's not a diss on digital because what digital could do could, to your point, it could greatly, greatly enhance. I mean, to leverage uh, the connectivity and the relationships and the communication and the access and the convenience and in ways that are just undoable, unimaginable without it. So uh, I really love that. I want to jump to this notion of, of decentralized. Can you say more about that? And, and if you've got a, a story again, your stories are so fantastic that illustrates that. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, right out of training, um, I had an incredible opportunity to join sort of one of the first uh, sort of tech enabled healthcare services companies to, to be, uh, you know, really rapidly growing startup, right? Uh, Evolent Health was sort of built on the back of the ACA and, you know, it was one of the first, you know, healthcare services IPOs. And I got to be a part of that. And what I learned though is, you know, this was back in, this was about 10 years ago. And so you had health systems that we were basically helping them t 
take on risk of their populations, right? So setting up provider-sponsored plans or, um, or, or setting up ACOs 10 years ago. And, and these were health systems that recognized they wanted to move there, right? Number two is they were paying us inordinate amounts of money to help them set these things up. But what the reason I ended up leaving that pretty quickly is because when I would go to one of those health systems, and one of them happens to be in my backyard here in DC, and I just meet with the doctors, uh, I'd say, hey, you know, uh, what do you guys think of Evelyn, and, and what do you think of all this value-based care stuff? And they'd say, well, what are you talking about? And I say, oh, you know, don't you know, like we're doing this whole thing, and we're, you know, we're changing the way payment works, and we're, you know, we're measuring this quality, and you know, we're actually setting up a product sponsor plan. And they'd say, well, I don't know about that. And then similarly, if you ask the patients, saying, hey, you know, you're now in this, you know, risk arrangement, and you know, now your doctor has more accountability for you, and they'd say, okay, this feels kind of like the same as it was for me before. And that was a really stark moment for me, Zoe, because I sort of looked at that and I said, wow. We're in like literally the, the bleeding edge of health systems doing the bleeding edge of sort of value-based care that are, again, paying us inordinate amounts of money to do this. And yet this wasn't really changing the front lines of care. And so a huge part of this concept of decentralized is like, look, if you have a quality improvement initiative, if you have a value-based arrangement, if you have a whatever you want to call it <laughs> and your doctors don't know what it is and your patients don't feel the impact of it, it just doesn't matter. And, you know, one of the examples I give sort of on the clinical side is, you know, and, and all of us have this story, by the way, but it's taking care of this wonderful woman in her 60s in and out of the hospital with heart failure. And during one of her post-hospital visits with me in primary care, I said, look, as you remember, make sure you're checking, you know, your weight. And if your weight's up to give me a call so we can titrate up your Lasix. And I walked out of the room. And for some reason that day, I don't know if I woke up on the right side of the bed, but I, that day I said, maybe she doesn't have a weighing scale. So I went back in and I said, uh, do you have a weighing scale? And she said, uh, honestly, Dr. Nandi, I don't. And you could see the shame, you know, sort of in her face. And so I said, okay, well, hang on for a second. So I looked through the clinic, tried to find one, couldn't find one, ended up just handing her 20 bucks and I said, hey, and she never had a hospitalization again. And so when I say front lines first, or I talk about decentralized, what I'm trying to say is you got to put the resources and the, and the decision-making authority in the hands of people closest to care. Because those folks know, right, who needs the weighing scale, who needs the carpets cleaned, right, who needs additional home services. If all we're doing is shifting the centralized administrative resources from a health plan to a major hospital system, that's not that different. What you have to do is really decentralize it, push it down to the doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals, and the patients, right, who are closest to care, and know how those resources should really be stewarded. You shared a story of, I guess, a community health worker, her name was Ashantu, I think, in Mozambique, where she was out in, I guess, people were living in huts and stuff like this, way, way out, far from the city, and she was digitally enabled. She had software programs that told her who she should see and, and things like that. But, but she was able to determine, you know, things that, again, as you're saying, from a distance, you couldn't, she could make those fine tunings. And I, I think it really goes back to personalized care, customized care. And to your point, giving the people at the front line, the, the ability, the tools, the time uh, to be able and, and, and the centralized support, the digital support, the, the analytics, 
you know, that story really, for me, painted that picture. You know, then you contrasted it with, here's a woman out in Mozambique carrying her kit in her, in her knapsack doing life-saving work. But then you come back home and you're in your clinic and, and it, just the stark contrast of how constrained the frontline providers and staff are in not being able to deliver that care because the, the imposition, as you say, of this sort of homogeneous, non-consumer, non-customer, non-personalized care that sort of the system foists upon them. And I, I wonder if you could say a word about that. Yeah, I mean, oh, I'm glad that story resonated. And uh, I still think about, yeah, that, that community health worker a lot. I mean, I think the, the, the one piece that you touched on in there is it's also about decision-making authority, right? If, if you think about it, this community health worker in Mozambique who had less than an eighth grade education was able to, you know, go to house to house on her own, decide who to see and um, diagnose and treat, you know, malaria. Uh, and other conditions, right? And then you come back home and my nurses can't even go to a patient's house to draw blood. Uh, you know, I, I can't, you know, decide to, to, to visit someone at, at home if they need to. Uh, I can't, you know, again, get them the weighing scale. Uh, and so I think, again, this is why, again, we talk about at a policy level, we say, okay, well, we're going to do, you know, risk-based care. But if I don't have, if, if I have an arm, you know, one of my arms tied behind my back, Right, so that that patient that has the transportation barrier and the decubitus ulcer, if I can't even go there and get their blood work, you know, uh, that's the part that I, I don't see us talking enough about. And I think it's in part sort of the meta issue is because we sort of think macro down versus saying, if we don't change the micro interaction between a patient and herself, a patient and her doctor, a patient and her care team, it just doesn't matter. Like that is sort of the lens we need to start bringing and then take it all the way back up to the health system level and all the way back up to the policy level. But I think too often we're not talking about that, right? We're, we're comfortable talking about Medicare for all, but we're not talking about how you can actually reverse people from diabetes. We're, we're talking about, you know, um, value-based care, but we're not talking about the fact that HIV is preventable and that uh, patients can be hospitalized at home and Right. We, we sometimes get just so uncomfortable for some reason talking about sort of the clinical context and the clinical models. And I'm not sure if we're doing ourselves a service by, by, by doing that. She had in her hands an iPhone of some sort, right? A device of some sort. And she had some basic software, which in fact, a classmate of yours, as you mentioned from MIT created, but she was actually able to risk stratify the patients to know who was the sickest, who needed her care the most. And she could take that information and then to your point, have the decision-making power to say, I'm going to go to this person's home first because they need me more. Uh, you know, and again, the other part that I think the constraint is just that constraint of time. You know, when you're churning patients at 10 or 12 minutes a clip, and that's what you have to do, uh, you don't have the time, you're not enabled. And I, I really think some of the, you know, people talk about this moral injury or moral harm to providers these days. I think it really is almost sort of a learned helplessness. You know, there's more that you can do. You've been trained to, you understand it, but, you know, visit after visit, week after week, month after month, year after year, you know, it's that learned helplessness. You just don't have what you need to do what you know is right for the person in front of you. Does that resonate with you? Deeply, deeply resonates deeply resonates. And, and, and I think the other aspect I'd bring is this idea of personalization, which we also talk about in the dig digitally enabled part, which is that 
it's, it's, I think the approach we take often is this to giving resources, right? Because this is your point. Your point is the doctors don't and the nurses don't feel like they, they have the resources to do what they know they should do for their patients, right? But the approach that we take to, to giving those resources is like, oh, we have this new program where we're going to give everybody who, with heart failure uh, a wireless blood pressure cuff. Oh, we're going to give everybody uh, a wireless weighing machine or a weighing machine, or, oh, we're going to give everybody a pharmacist, you know, or whatever, or in my world, in the employer world, people say, oh, we're going to give everybody Livongo, a digital diabetes service. And that's not what we need either, because that's a one size fits all model, right? Every patient who's struggling with their chronic disease needs something different. And again, well, who knows what that different need is, oh, it's the it's the doctors and the nurses and the and sometimes the patients, right? But so it's it's not that we're not attuned to some of these problems. It's just, and then again, from a, if we put, you and I put our business hats on, then you lose the ROI because the moment that you have to give everybody a weighing machine, and, and, but it's only driving outcomes for, let's say 10%, because guess what? The other 80% already have a weighing machine or their problem isn't the weighing machine. It's they can't afford their meds. And the other people, it's because they don't actually understand what heart failure is. And the other people, it's because, you know, they live in a food desert, right? Like, because we take that one size fits all model, we end up diluting the value. And then the cost is applied to the full population. And so kind of the term I start to use is I start to say, we need to do population health one patient at a time. You know, I spent uh, a few years as a population health director and medical director, and people have this sort of sense that population health is this large scale. The truth is population health is one person at a time. It, it, it has to be. It loses everything if it's not. It, then it becomes something else. And you mentioned that story, and I, I just want to kind of go back to it, your own story about you realized that a patient of yours didn't have a scale and as a result, they were ending up in the hospital over and over again. And you literally pulled out 20 bucks from your pocket, gave it to her again. And in the book, you actually even say, I'm not even sure if I was going to get in trouble for it, or I could get in trouble for it if I was breaking some sort of regulation, right? I mean, that story, I think, is really the fractile. It really tells the whole story. You, as a primary care physician, don't even have the ability to, without filling out paperwork and calling consults and getting everyone involved, you know, and I don't even know if you could, uh, if you did all, I don't even know what you could to get a scale to them, but you don't have a fund. You don't have uh, you know, direct, easy click a button or say to someone, this person needs a scale. I mean, there's something so fundamental and, and, and look at the return. She was able to buy a $20 scale and saved tens of thousands of dollars a year. And that's just one patient with a $20 investment, the ROI, the return on investment is crazy. And, and it's the right thing to do. And yet the system doesn't let you do that. And I, I think that is just speaks volumes to what is fundamentally wrong. And I don't know how our leadership across the country at all levels just ignores that um, or doesn't get it. And if they do get it, then why aren't we doing something about it? Because I, I mean, I visualized you in that office. And by the way, I was there for 20 years in that office. And I know exactly what you feel. And there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of clinicians and staff who know exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll add something funny too, which is because uh, you've written a couple of books now, you know, so a fact checker went through my book and she looked up that particular comment I made about, hey, this, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to. And we actually added a footnote that said, actually, it turns out you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed. Of course you're I, not. I, I must have broke some sort of stark law or I don't know, some law by giving my patient money. Well, I, I know that. 
That's so funny. I, I know that, but I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to get <laughs> you in trouble, right. I, you know, but <laughs> how ridiculous yes. is that? It's, yeah. it's just, it's a shame on us and yeah. our system um, that, that, that a doctor can't, you know, get a patient to scale. And fundamentally, it, you know, a lot of it goes back to, to the payment model, which is fee for service. I'm not going to even get, I don't want to get into that with you right now. I do want to jump to chapter 10 and the issue of self-service care and self-managed support. Again, I think there are so many regulatory and payment blockages to something that is so, so obvious that so much of care could be self-care, especially now, as you point out, uh, you know, distributed, digitally enabled, and decentralized. The patients and their families themselves can be part of the solution uh, through self-service care, as well as some, some support that doesn't require the full-blown physician and, and team, et cetera. I'd love for you just to talk about this unleashing uh, of tremendous uh, effectiveness and, and efficiency and access that could, and, and reduction in costs that could happen as a result of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we're all here in service of the patient, right? You know, I, and I think that sometimes we let some of our sort of antiquated notions get in the way of coming up with solutions that work. In fact, the whole reason I wrote the book was early in the pandemic, when a month in, when everyone was talking about testing, 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 I wrote a really simple piece saying, what if patients could test themselves uh, at home? And it went viral. I mean, literally, I was in Rolling Stone magazine a couple weeks later. And everyone I talked to, employers, patients, you know, uh, advocates were all saying, gosh, this makes so much sense. You're not going to burden the health system. You could keep patients at home. They could test them. They get it mailed, test themselves at home. But here's what happened. What happened was when I talked to policymakers, I mean, some of the responses they had were shocking. They said, oh, well, you know, we can't trust patients to know when to test themselves. And I said, well, people aren't just going to willy nilly want to stick a Q-tip up their brain, you know? <laughs> I mean, and they said, well, are they going to do it correctly? And I said, well, I remember when I was a med student, like, I don't even think anyone taught me how to do it. Like, I just saw it and I just did it, right? Um, and then they said, um, and this was the best. This was in USA Today, literally a professor at an academic medical center was quoted by saying something like, at-home testing doesn't make sense because how can a patient without the benefit of a doctor who's known them for 10 years help them interpret the result of an at-home COVID test? And, and you know where some of these things come from, right? I mean, I think they come from a good place, but it's so far removed from the reality of how primary care works and forgetting most importantly, that for most people, the alternative to sort of you know, testing themselves or caring for themselves is not care from a doctor. It's actually care from no one. It's no care, right? Particularly when you talk about our most vulnerable communities, it's not like they're sitting there saying, oh, well, I'll either test myself at home or I'll just go see the doctor I've known for the past 10 years. Like, no, you don't have a doctor that you've been seeing for the 10 years. You don't have insurance and you don't have a day of, you know, worth of wages that you can afford to lose waiting to get an appointment. And so I just think we need to take a really fresh look at, at we're here in service of the patient and for, look at every care model, right? I'm not saying people should treat their own cancer, right? I, I think you got to look sort of, you got to get micro and look, you know, look at the problem you're trying to solve, understand that patient journey and really ask yourself, what is the best way to serve the outcome and the patient that you're trying to get to? I hope that uh, people uh, get your book and read it. And particularly at that section on just the tremendous potential we have to include patients as part of the care team and 
and most people are taking care of they're not they're not they're not engaging the care system and so this is uh, only going to add to their care not detract from it and my guess is you know self-care would actually potentially uh, create more appropriate care um so by connecting people and engaging people in their health care uh, by allowing them to be part of it you know i, I think that comment by the, that professor from the center i mean i think you know, quite honestly, my first thought was that's a little bit paternalistic. If you could, what what would you say to federal policymakers, HHS and, and CMS and the decision makers, if you could speak to them now, what, what message would you want to relay to them? I think one I already said, which is that I think that they they have to start sort of taking the end user design perspective and really get way more granular uh, in the work that they're doing, right? Thinking about you know, if you're going to build a program, how do doctors know about it? How are patients going to use it? Um, what are all the different sort of friction points that we're creating in whatever intervention we're trying to do at the policy level? So I think I spoke on that. I think that a totally other one is, you know, bringing sort of the startup mentality into, into the healthcare world is set big, hairy, audacious goals. I mean, look at what we've done with the vaccines, right? When we said 100 million doses in 100 days, um, if they did, think about how you would normally do that with policy, right? Normally, you, you wouldn't set a goal at all. You wouldn't have a big, hairy, audacious goal. You would just say, oh, what we're going to do is we're going to train providers on the vaccine. We're going to uh, do some public service announcements. We're going to maybe um, increase reimbursement for visits that code that a COVID-19 vaccine happened, right? And where would we be right now if that's what we did? I think what they did instead, or what they did instead, was they set, again, a really bold, audacious goal, and they rallied a multi-sector approach to get there from, you know, advanced market commitments and, you know, supporting the supply chain to direct contracting with community health centers. Um, and it wasn't all public, right? Tons of this is happening at, you know, CVSs and Walgreens, right? But I think they're so shy to do that. And I think we should start applying that. We should say, hey, let's get, I don't know, 50 million people's diabetes prevented in the next 10 years, like two years. Let's get this many people um, uh, you know, off of uh, uh, tobacco products. Let's get blood pressure control here. And then let's think about every lever we can pull in a sort of multi-sectoral way to drive public, private, nonprofit you know, actors toward meeting that goal and some shared accountability for getting there. So two very different things. What have you learned leading healthcare startups for the past 15 or 20 years that, that sort of surprised you and that you wish you knew earlier and you think others, uh, you'd like others to be aware of? Yeah, I, I think the biggest one is sort of the classic start small, plan for big mentality. I really learned of that sort of duality between you want to, when you make changes in healthcare, you want to, you want to aim for something that can be really big, right? I think a lot of solutions that are being designed really cannot scale to the size of the problem that you're trying to meet, right? Like say, if you want to improve mental health, people think, okay, well, what we need to do is get more licensed psychiatrists. Like there's not going to be enough licensed psychiatrists to, to, address the level of need we have in mental health, right? So I think one is sort of the planning for scale. And then the other part is that sort of starting small part, right? Which is that 
rather than sort of analysis paralysis, rather than having assumptions make an ass out of you and me, right? It's, it's really, you know, starting to put down hypotheses, implement an intervention that aligns to your big plan, and then iterate on it constantly as you're looking at data. And data, by the way, both qualitative and quantitative. I think medicine, because we're scientists, we tend to discount qualitative data, but I've found that it's extremely valuable, right? Uh, like the example I gave earlier, just ask patients why it worked or ask them why it's not working. Ask them how they feel about it. Ask them if they would recommend it to anyone else. Ask and similar set of questions for the doctors. Maybe that's the biggest thing I've learned. No, that's significant. Shantana, you've accomplished so much already, uh, but I, I tell you in reading your book and, and speaking to you, I just, uh, I get this overwhelming sense of the potential for what you're going to bring into healthcare. And so I uh, just want to thank you for what you're doing. Uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. I do have so many more questions. I hope we have a chance once you go through, uh, you know, the next few weeks and months to get a chance to kind of revisit with you and catch up with you. Just again, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. And I'd be honored to to, to chat anytime. I, I love what you're doing. I uh, love the reframe concept and, uh, just super thrilled to have a chance to talk to you today. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And as I do every episode, uh, Shantanu, I conclude by thanking uh, all the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, which by the way, includes you, because I know you just came from clinic. Uh, and those of you out there who are supporting those who are taking care of patients, I and we truly appreciate you for what you're doing. Recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, or society. I think this conversation with Dr. Nundi even underscored that more with all the digital, electronic, and virtual and uh, policymaking going on. It still comes down to people who are actually taking care of people. This is Zev Neuwirth on creating a new healthcare. My friends, until next time, be safe and be well.